The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Lawfare Archive. I'm Jacob Schultz with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 11th, 2021. Today, it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. From the archives, I picked a conversation from 2012 between Alan Rosenstein, now a senior editor at Lawfare, and University of Toronto professor Kent Roach about Roach's then-new book, The 9-11 Effect, Comparative Counterterrorism. It's a conversation that's relevant to the past 20 years of American history, and particularly interesting to reflect on today. Hello, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. Today's subject is a new book by University of Toronto law professor Kent Roach, entitled The 9-11 Effect, Comparative Counterterrorism. The book, recently published by Cambridge University Press, takes a look at the response of the United Nations and a bunch of countries to the 9-11 attacks, examining the common themes in the responses of democratic countries. Roach, who is the editor-in-chief of Criminal Law Quarterly, talked with Lawfare's Alan Rosenstein the other day by phone. So, Professor Roach, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so... Your book, The 9-11 Effect, is a very rigorous and in-depth comparative study of counterterrorism law and policy post-9-11. Um, and the first thing I'd like to ask is if you could just give a summary of your project in this book and your general approach and what you think the main conclusions um, or the main takeaways are, are from the book. Well, the book represents more or less a decade of uh, research and service in a lot of these areas. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the main approach has, has been as an academic to say, how can we measure the effect that 9-11 made uh, uh, on a global basis? Now, the book doesn't attempt to look at, obviously, every jur- jurisdiction, but I think it does look at about uh, 12 or 13, and it looks quite closely at the United, United Nations. So in terms of the main conclusions of the book, I think I do find uh, trends uh, towards uh, increased state power in an attempt to prevent 
uh, another 9-11, but that in each of these countries there's a lot of continuity uh, uh, with respect to uh, security uh, practices uh, before 9-11. Uh, um, I also find that the UN Security Council uh, has, has been a, a real driver of, uh, of counter-terrorism -ter policy, and I raise some uh, questions there. I like, I like to think that, you know, although there are plenty of criticisms uh, uh, of uh, the, the Security Council and states uh, for uh, violating human rights, uh, that I also take on board concerns about the efficacy of counterterrorism uh, policies. And then I guess finally, um, the last uh, main theme in the book and reflects uh, probably my own experience working on Canada's ARAR Commission and the Air India uh, Commission is that as we move to a you know, whole of government and indeed uh, transnational approaches uh, with respect to counterterrorism, that there's some pretty fundamental accountability gaps, uh, again, both with respect to uh, human rights compliance, but also with respect to the efficacy of counterterrorism ter activities. So although, you know, walls have been broken down and governments are attempting to take more of a whole-of-government approach, um, many of our review mechanisms remain mired in agency-based silos. And even when there are uh, whole-of-government uh, attempts to, uh, to uh, ensure, let's say, the efficacy of counterterrorism policies, uh, they often uh, are not effective. So the accountability gap theme is one that I think is very important, and it plays out both on the human rights and the security side of the ledger. You criticize um, the what, what I think you characterize as the inadequacy of the UN's definition of, of terrorism, mm -hmm. um, and, and you repeatedly emphasize that the UN really missed an important opportunity to create a uh, a broad but sort of appropriately limited definition of terrorism. And, and so the, the two questions I have for you are. One, what would this definition look like for, for you? Um, and, and second, why do you think the UN had such trouble, if indeed it did, in coming to this ideal definition? Right. Well, I mean, I think the UN made a decision after 9-11 really not to take on the definitional issues. So, thir you know, Security Council Resolution 1373 really says nothing about definitions, and the Security Council only comes in in 2004 after many countries have already enacted new laws. And I think that, you know, in a sense, it's understandable because, uh, you know, there, there had been a lack of international agreement with respect to definitions. But I do think that there was an opportunity there uh, for perhaps a year after 9-11 to say, you know, regardless of fights about state terrorism or freedom uh, fighting, uh, what happened on 9-11 uh, was an act of ter terrorism. And so the definition that I prefer is actually the one the Supreme Court of Canada used immediately after 9-11 in dealing with an undefined reference to terrorism 
in our immigration law, and that is um, taken from the general definition in the 1999 Financing Convention, and it's basically um, intentional uh, killing or bodily harm in order to intimidate a population or compel governments or international organizations to act. And although that may lean on the side of under inclusion, under inclusion, uh, you know, especially with respect to cyber uh, threats and mm-hmm. the like, I think it would have uh, provided a more solid uh, foundation for this kind of global expansion of counterterrorism laws that we saw immediately after 9-11 as countries um, wanted to comply with 1373, but also many countries were dealing with these issues because of the Financial Action Task Force's um, um, adding of terrorism financing to its money laundering mandate. So the the question then is what you think sort of the real negative consequences are. Is it an issue that some countries, because they didn't have a uh, restraining definition of terrorism, expanded that definition to include, for instance, political dissidents um, and and others who sort of ought not be classified as, as terrorists, even if they're uh, and even, even if they're uh, politically minded, um, or, or is it that it got in the way of cooperation between nations in global counterterrorism? I think that that is more of the former, uh, and so you know, particularly when you read the early country reports uh, from, say, Egypt and Syria, uh, which are two countries that I look at in the book, you see that the counterterrorism committee really seems unable to push back against. Um, potential misuses of the term terrorism because to a certain extent they haven't been given the tools with respect uh, uh, by the Security Council with respect to definition. Uh, this starts to change, and you know the, the, the critis- my criticisms and, and the criticisms that others have made of the Security Council's counterterrorism committee as a kind of rights-free zone, uh, I think, start to diminish around 2004 and 2005, and the Security Council does uh, start taking human rights on a bit more. But but by by that time, I think. Uh, a lot of the damage with respect to passage of new laws and legitima- legitimization of old repressive laws uh, has been uh, been uh, uh, done. And, and so, I mean, on 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 this issue, um, you know, I disagree with those who say it's it's kind of impossible to define uh, what terrorism is. And I also think that that that. There, there was a you know a point in history with the evolving laws of war and armed conflict that we could agree on a relatively narrow definition of terrorism and place um, um, a lot of the other issues that had bedeviled agreement on a definition of terrorism put push those over to the evolving laws of of war. But as I as I said, I you know. I think that opportunity was unfortunately lost. So I, I'd like to move now to considering some of the um, country studies that, that you do in your book. 
Um, so you go through, in addition to the United States, you very closely examine the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada, and you also um, more briefly talk about countries that uh, already had fairly robust laws in place before 9-11 or chose not to change um, those laws substantially, countries like Israel, Singapore, and Indonesia. Um, the first question is, the, most of the countries that you talk about are um, the common law regimes. Some of them are, many of them are commonwealth countries. Is that, uh, why did you make that choice? Is, is that an issue of, of expertise, or, or is, was there a particular rationale for, for limiting it to those countries and not considering in depth, for instance, you know, France, Germany, um, China, places like that? Yes, no, I mean, I mean, it was an issue of expertise. I mean, um, you know, th there's been a lot of debate uh, about the nature of comparative law, and I see very much the book as trying to define counterterrorism law, which in itself is ex an extremely broad category, as an important new field of comparative law. And so there, there's a debate within uh, comparative law between people who do small n and people who do large n studies, n being the number of studies, uh, a number of countries that are examined. And I guess I, you know, perhaps chose a typical uh, uh, Canadian sort of compromise where I wanted a mid-level mid <laughs> uh, 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 number of countries, but I wanted countries uh, that I was relatively familiar with. So uh, with some exceptions, um, I've taught and lectured in, in, in almost all of the countries uh, that I uh, dealt with. So I felt it was important to have a, have a sense of, even if it was only a brief sense, of the political and legal culture of each country, especially with respect to examining the hypothesis about continuity uh, post and pre-9-11. Uh, uh, the oddest country, in a way, that's included in the book is Indonesia, uh, but frankly that just reflects the fact that I was um, brought in as a consultant after 9-11 and before Bali. Uh, to give advice to the Indonesians about whether they knew, needed a new counter-terrorism -ter law. But it seems to me that if you really want to engage uh, with the political and legal culture, uh, as well as to have a sense of the broad, uh, broad array of instruments that any one country now uses as counter-terrorism law, ranging not only from criminal law, which is my primary subject, but to administrative law and immigration law, military law, and so on, uh, that there is a danger of oversimplification if you dealt with too many countries. So I think there are others that are working on, on countries, especially with respect to continental Europe. I think that that's uh, probably um, the uh, largest gap in, in, in my study. But I see this really as a kind of continuing con conversation, and I, I really hope that uh, counterterrorism law becomes a subject of comparative law, um, you know, as, as, as we move forward. So I, you discuss one of the hypotheses that, that you make in the book that runs throughout this issue of continuity, and, and I want to turn to, to England um, and, and discuss that first. 
So one of the, the striking features of, as you emphasize, of the English response is first how much it draws on England's own um, long and difficult history with domestic terrorism specifically uh, related to Northern Ireland um, and how even before 9-11, England's approach uh, was building off of that and was um, highly um, legal, which is to say it was based um, on enormous amount of legislation rather than, as you point out, in countries like the United States where there was a lot more um, coming from executive policy. So the, the first question I, I'd like to ask is, uh, in what ways do you think the, the Northern Irish experience and, and in more generally England's experience with homegrown terrorism shaped uh, its response uh, to, to 9/11. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, certainly um, the Terrorism Act 2000, which was already in existence before 9/11, was really a consolidation of a variety of temporary laws that had been enacted in 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 response to Irish terrorism, both in Northern Ireland and. Uh, uh, in England, um, but I, I would actually go farther back because uh, one of the reasons why England uh, is such an important country in the study actually relates to uh, my discussions of places like Israel and Singapore, and that is that the British colonial experience with colonial emergencies uh, uh, really uh, played a very large role. So in the book, I try to you know, trace, as others have, uh, British colonial uh, 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 emergency regimes to things like the Internal Security Act in Singapore and in Malaysia and some of the mandate um, um, uh, uh, regimes that are still in place in uh, Israel. And so I think that the, 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 the British experience of kind of ruling by legislation that could be imported uh, to the colonies uh, with certain changes uh, was extremely important after 9-11. And so, you know, for example, when I was in Indonesia, there was some suspicion, especially among some younger Indonesians, that, you know, a person for who all intents and purposes looks and sounds like an American was trying to bring the Patriot Act to Indonesia. And my response to that was, you know, even if I wanted to, you basically couldn't do it because of the particular complexities of the American legal system. What the real debate was about was to what degree was the Terrorism Act 2000 from England going to be the the basis for legislation, uh, or were you going to uh, take some some other variations on 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 that? So, I mean, it seems to me that the UK experience, both with Northern Ireland, but also with colonial emergency rule, was really quite fundamental. Uh, after 9-11, and of course the fact that the Terrorism Act 2000 was the most recent uh, comprehensive uh, piece of terrorism legislation meant that many countries um, 
especially in the Commonwealth, but also beyond the Commonwealth, even countries like Indonesia, looked to the British legislation as at least a starting point when they drafted their own responses to 9-11 and Security Council Resolution 1373. Going back to English colonial history and, and the way that England controlled um, its empire was to, to the extent that, that during English during the imperial period, an enormous amount of control was given to the local English officials who were then sent to run these various um, places. Um, Why is it that England then, in dealing with counterterrorism later, chose a legislative rather than more executive-based approach? Because I can imagine it would be just as natural for them to say, well, the way that we controlled these populations was by dispatching these very powerful um, governors and other types of, of you know, what we would think of as quintessentially executive type officials. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, was there a change there, and, and if so, why? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously the decline of empire and the growth of self-government and self-determination means that, you know, whether you're talking about uh, in England or the United States, uh, that kind of direct response or, uh, is is uh, not uh, going to be on. Uh, you know, certainly issues of uh, of uh, cooperation and funding play a role. But I I I would suggest that even even during the times of British colonial uh, emergency rule, um, although individual governors obviously played a role, those governors also brought with them a legislative apparatus. And there's a certain candor, I think, in the British legislative approach that we don't necessarily see in the North American uh, approach. And so, you know, that's, that's why you know, I think one of the one of the you know basic insights of the book that some in the United States I think find shocking is if you read the Terrorism Act 2000 from England and you read it uh, uh, um, uh, uh, next to the Patriot Act, uh, the Terrorism Act 2000 is a much more you know tougher uh, document and deals with things like prescriptions of organizations, criminal penalties for belonging to organizations, criminal penalties for expressing support for prescribed organizations that would just never come up in uh, American or indeed uh, Canadian legislation. And so I think that that even the British colonial experience was one that was in part ruled by legislation. Legislation often drafted in London uh, and perhaps modified to fit the particular colonies. But this is why if you if if you read the Internal Security Act in Singapore and Malaysia, if you read uh, some of the emergency ordinance in Israel, there's a real kind of common phrasing. And as a as a you know as a Commonwealth lawyer, you can kind of land almost anywhere in the Commonwealth, whether it's Kenya, which also had emergency legislation, is, is Israel during the mandate period, uh, Malaysia, and fairly quickly find your ground because they all are kind of working on a very similar template. 
And, and so I, I, I think that, and, and this was also one of the points that I thought was most interesting in, in the book was the point you just made that a lot of the English legislation, which then uh, ex was exported to the rest of the, the world um, and has been, as you point out, much, much more influential than, for instance, um, the Patriot Act or, frankly, any kind of American counterterrorism policy um, is in many ways much harsher um, than, than American legislation. Um, and I just want to be clear on, on, on why I think that is. So, so one of the points that, that you discuss is, and I think you just emphasized, was England's experience with um, both domestic terrorism and also you know, occupation, which the United States also has, but I suppose to a lesser extent. And, and that's one factor. And I wonder, the second factor that you discuss also is the, the fact that America has, because of its particular constitutional order, and, and in particular the Bill of Rights, um, the um, limitations on what uh, the American government can do that I, I suppose just don't exist in England. I mean, are, are those the two factors that, that you think sort of fully explain why this English legislation is in so many ways much harsher than the American legislation? Yes, yes, and, 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 and it is. I mean, I think the American privileging of expressive and associational freedoms is really the most striking differences. But, of course, as I suggest in the book, it, it doesn't mean that the American response isn't harsh, but it does mean that it is not going to involve uh, um, limitations on the rights of expressive and associational freedoms, particularly of American citizens. And so, you know, th th this 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 is an area of, I guess, American exceptionalism. Although, frankly, as a Canadian, I think we're much closer to the American tradition when it comes to some of those expressive and associational freedoms. And so, although Canada. Um, certainly uh, looked at the Terrorism Act 2000 and, and used it. Um, we stopped short with respect to, you know, criminalizing membership in a prescribed group or criminalizing uh, uh, support uh, for a prescribed uh, ter 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 terrorist group. So um, I, I, I do think it is the expressive and associational uh, freedoms and. You know, perhaps where I saw that most. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dra dra dramatically revealed 
is if you read the U.S. and Canadian country reports to the Security Council with respect to Resolution 1624, which called on states to enact laws or to ensure that the indirect advocacy of terrorism was a crime. Uh, 1624 was very much a British initiative led by Prime Minister Blair after the London bombings. And he, he in fact, had less trouble convincing the Security Council than he had his own par parliament. But if you read the American response uh, to that Security Council resolution, it basically says, well, we have a thing called the First Amendment in the, in the United States, and that's really going to uh, make it impossible for us to follow this international mandate. So it is the expressive and associational uh, freedoms in the United States that really, I think, distinguish the, 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 its approach from the approach uh, taken in the UK, but also in continental Europe, where concepts of militant democracy provide uh, some uh, legitimacy for attempts to curtail expressive and associational freedoms in order to prevent terrorism. And, and just to be clear, when you talk about militant democracy, you're referring to this view that it is legitimate for a democracy to take often coercive measures, such as restricting certain associational and expressive rights, in order to preserve that democracy. So, exactly. The exactly. Weimar Republic here being the classic example of when that might be useful. Um, exactly. And, and those lessons learned from that period. Yeah, no, no, it, it, exactly. And, you know, I, I think there are differences between the English version of militant democracy, which you see in, in, in the post-London bombing offenses with respect to glorification of terrorism and indirect advocacy, and the post-World War II German uh, version of militant democracy, which allows parties to be banned if they do not accept the constitutional order. But I think the common thread there and what distinguishes them from the United States is a willingness to infringe expressive and associational freedoms, even if it is only to prevent a fairly remote harm to the constitutional order and a fairly remote harm of uh, terrorist violence. So I'd like to go back to the statement that, that, that you made that although the English legislative approach to counterterrorism was harsher than the American, we might argue was harsher than the American legislative approach. That's not true generally, and you have to look to where a lot of the counterterrorism policy in America came from, namely from the executive branch. So I was, I was hoping to turn to the United States. So uh, I think it's absolutely true that the United States had an enormous amount of uh, counterterrorism policy coming from the executive. Uh, some of that might have been uh, an accident of which particular administration was in office at during 9-11 and right afterwards and, and what their particular views of the appropriate role of the executive branch relative to the other branches of government was in counterterrorism and foreign policy. But just as a preliminary matter, how much of the difference between the U.S. approach and, let's say, the English approach can be explained simply by the fact that the U.S. has a presidential system um, with a lot of separation of powers, with um, very frequent divided government, um, with these strong traditions of of, uh, of disagreement um, relative to the English approach with parliamentary supremacy and the ability to, uh, I don't want to say jam through necessarily, but the ability to pass 
you know, huge sweeping changes that often touch on the kind of constitutional order um, without too much trouble. So just to sort of make it uh, clear, um, to what extent did, let's say, the Bush administration's use of executive power come just from the fact that when you have to act very quickly in the United States, there's often just not enough time to get things through Congress or as much through Congress as you might like? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, certainly that is part of the difference. And in Canada, we've, you know, had uh, quite a few minority governments. And when you have a minority government in Parliament, that is a, a government that can't push Parliament to do exactly what it what, what it wants. You're reminded that in most cases in parliamentary systems, uh, 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 the government can. Um, but, you know, I think that that can actually be overstated, and, and I'll take two examples, one from the U.K. and one from the United States. Both Prime Minister Blair and Brown um, had real trouble uh, getting through uh, 42 and 90 days uh, maximums of preventive arrests, and, and in fact, their backbenchers refused to go that far. So I think that it, that is a, a, a reminder that um, there is, I think, a real virtue of putting these more extreme executive measures before a deliberative body uh, uh, for debate and, and debate not only in parliament but in civil society. Um, in the United States, I mean, you're, you're, you're right that the Bush administration had a particularly broad view of executive powers, but I also think that um, um, there are some real continuities with the Obama administration. So, you know, to, to the extent that the authorization of the use of military force, which is a, you know, as you know, a pretty bare bones document, uh, is still uh, the, you know, basis. Um, it, it is a, a congressional basis, but it is the basis for much of what the Obama administration is 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 doing. And so I, you know, I I do think that there is a greater comfort level in the United States with um, 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 giving the executive uh, quite a wide uh, latitude. Um, and, you know, even in places like Canada, the executive is always, I think, in counterterrorism, regardless of what constitutional system you're operating with. It's always going to have uh, a lot of latitude and is going to be in, in essence, uh, the, the first responder. But, you know, things like the Arar Commission show that in Canada, when the executive is seen to have participated in something that um, many feel is a mistake, that the government feels compelled to unleash pretty um, um, uh, uh, pretty strong accountability measures, which frankly you don't always see with respect to executive conduct in the United States. So, um, I, I think one of the one of the main claims that you make in, in your analysis of the United States experience, and, and I think one of the most bold and provocative claims, is this argument about uh, extra legalism, which you characterize as really pervasive 
throughout not just the early Bush administration and the you know, first two years after 9-11, but almost throughout and, and continuing to the present day. So, so first I just want to make sure that we're clear on the terms. It's, it's Extralegalism is, is used in many different contexts, and, and it can get a bit vague, but, but you define it, I think, quite clearly. So you say it's, quote, a, a legal, a illegal conduct that was nevertheless supported by dubious claims of legality and the apparent paradox of the American response to 9-11 being dominated by lawyers, yet so often resulting in illegal actions such as rendition, torture, and warrantless spying. So Yes, and, 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 and I mean, um, I, I think it's important for listeners to understand that I do distinguish extra-legalism from uh, purely extra-legal conduct of the type that Oren Gross talked about in his 2003 Yale Law, Law Journal article, because it seems to me that the difference is not uh, that, that much of what was done in the United States is, in a sense, covered by claims of legality or, just as importantly, claims of non-reviewability by the courts, whether that's done through uh, political questions or qualified immunity, refusal to extend Bivens' uh, uh, damage claims. So, I mean, I, mean I, I, I think where my concept of extra-legalism differs from purely extra-legal uh, um, uh, uh, conduct is that it it makes the claim that the American legal system is really facilitating um, this sort of con conduct, and that there are serious claims made uh, that this conduct is either legal or cannot be reviewed by the courts. So, so let me ask. What I want to push back just a little bit on is whether or not that term usefully encompasses the whole set of phenomena you're trying to explain. So on the one hand, you have, I think, some of the most extreme examples, the so-called torture memos, which um, expressed really incredibly broad claims of executive power that often uh, were, you know, even if they were uh, expressed with a, with a good faith, um, that is to say, even if this is what, John, you really thought, um, were truly outside the mainstream. Um, and were in fact used as cover um, to perform many, you know, perform acts that are generally now considered illegal. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have things like the military commissions, you have the uh, restrictions on habeas for Guantanamo prisoners, and these are now uh, legal regimes that have been exhaustively vetted by all three branches of the government. So the executive branch, obviously, but Congress as well, with its repeated attempts to strip, um, uh, let's say, Guantanamo detainees of habeas, and also the Supreme Court. So we see this, for example, in uh, the aftermath of Boumediene, where the Supreme Court essentially remanded to the D.C. Circuit to craft a habeas regime, and then has refused to revisit this issue, essentially to a lot of commentators blessing the, very, the fairly limited rights of uh, Guantanamo prisoners for review. And so my question is, on that side of the spectrum, when all three branches of the government have weighed in and have essentially blessed a particular policy, to what extent is it useful to call it extra-legal? Um, well, and just to be clear, yeah, yeah. we, we no, might no, think no, it's no. bad policy, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, but it seems deeply legal. 
Yes, no, and 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 uh, no, I, I I agree with that completely. But 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 that's the reason why I called it extra legalism. I think the ISM uh, makes a huge difference. So I mean, just just to be clear, that you know, I'm not saying that this is uh, the torture ticking time bomb sort of scenario where an interrogator will say, you know, look, I'm I'm going to do something, I'm going to break the law, and I'm prepared uh, to pay the consequences. So I think that, that even though all of the branches of governments have vetted this, I mean, certainly that increases the transparency. And one of the things that I really admire about the American system, although I think many in the United States are increasingly concerned about it, is the degree of transparency that 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 so much of this has been vetted not only by all three branches of government but also by the New York Times uh, <laughs> revealing it. So yes, there, there 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 is a lot to be admired with respect to that transparency, but I do think that extra legalism captures this phenomena which is that the legal system has in various ways whether it's through not looking at post-Bumidian cases whether it's through qualified immunity whether it's through you know uh, a qualified immunity with respect to the pretextual use of immigration law the Ashcroft roundups round, round, round that the legal system has actually approved what many outside the United States instinctively think of as ill 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 illegal conduct and so i mean i actually saw extra legalism as a concept that would perhaps be a bridge from american lawyers to european lawyers because certainly you know having taught and been at conferences in europe you see a lot of kind of instinctive uh, um, 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 uh, responses in Europe that it's all extra legal, it's all all John Yu, and it's all this kind of you know thuggish, not obeying the rules. And part of my concept of extra legalism is to say, well, uh, you know, to Europeans who feel that way, you you may think that this is extra legal. It may be extra legal in your system, but it is something that within the American legal system is supported or at least condoned because all the branches know about this and they're not really taking action uh, with, with, with respect to stopping it. So even something like Bivens uh, um, remedies, uh, the, the idea that you don't have a remedy for a violation of a constitutional right unless Congress explicitly authorizes it is one that's kind of odd in many constitutional systems in Europe and indeed in, in Canada where the European Convention says you have a right to an effective remedy. You have a constitutional right to an effective remedy. And so, I mean, I, you know, I realize that this concept of extra legalism is provocative, but it was really one where I was attempting to bridge a gap that I was seeing between American and European lawyers with European lawyers 
saying this is all, you know, uh, extra legal. And American lawyers, I think, rightly given their legal system, saying it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, I think that's very helpful. I, I think to me one of the reasons I, I found it very provocative and, and sometimes disagreed with it is, is that it, it assumes that um, – it, it, I think assumes that a lot of the underlying actions are in fact illegal because yeah. essentially what you're saying is that um, we take a position and either it's based on European law or it's based on some conception of international law or it's based on some conception of natural law. It's based on some conception of law that disagrees with the American system, and we see America violate that or act in violation of that, let's say. And then the way we explain it is by saying, well, sure, it's illegal in this broader sense or from this perspective, but within the confines of the American legal system, it's actually perfectly legal. And here we're talking about the, the, the things like habeas post boumediene and military commissions when they've been vetted. And I suppose what's provocative, I think, for a lot of American readers and, and listeners is the assumption that the Europeans have it right on the underlying legal issue. For instance, that um, individuals held at Guantanamo Bay uh, do get you know, uh, habeas as if they were, or to the extent that they were criminal prisoners rather than what a lot of Americans believe, that, you know, that these are um, uh, prisoners of war and so they don't necessarily get habeas. And so I just want to be crisp on, on that kind of conceptual point. Yeah. No, no. And I mean, I think that that is a fair criticism, but I do think that, you know, um, indeterminate detention without trial and this sort of avoiding or, you know, this this new blend we have of the laws of war and the laws of crime uh, do uh, strike many people as contrary to um, established international law principles. But, I mean, I take your point that there is an assumption, at least, that the rest of the world or much of the rest of the world has trouble accepting the legality of these um, measures. And that could have been, I perhaps, more strongly argued in the book. But I kind of felt that a lot of that scholarship had already been done and was out there. And what I'm more interested in in the study of comparative law and, and transnational law is trying to bridge these different understandings of legality in the United States and the rest of the world. And, in fact, I mean, you know, events subsequent to the book being completed, I think, shows that even from a practical sense, Americans have to deal with these international perceptions. So, you know, the fact that President Obama can issue a waiver of the possibility of military detention and military trials with respect to uh, when it is necessary to get counterterrorism cooperations from third countries suggests that even Americans cannot ignore the fact that many other countries will view these actions as extra legal, even if they are spelled out in an act of Congress or spelled out in an executive order. And so I think from, from, from the vantage point of comparative law and also 
frankly, from someone who's interested in transnational cooperation with respect to counterterrorism. Um, uh, the American, American government cannot afford to ignore uh, perceptions, even if they don't accept those perceptions, that some American counterterrorism conduct, like military uh, detention and military commissions, is not uh, acceptable under traditional understandings of the law of war. One of the themes that you talk about throughout the book is the growing dissatisfaction and what you often call cynicism with the criminal law as an adequate tool to deal with counterterrorism. And uh, it, it's certainly true that we've often had very awkward blends of criminal law and, and military law principles. But I, I wonder what you think that the, that the uh, ideal position is. And, and the reason I ask is, is as follows. Um, so it, it seems that rightly or wrongly, we, and I don't think just the United States, but many Western societies, have decided that terrorism uh, in particular cannot be tolerated and that prevention is incredibly important. And so we have a number of consequences that flow from that. First is the use of uh, intelligence techniques that may be incompatible, frankly, with traditional criminal procedures. Um, and second is the increasing criminalization of uh, of actions earlier and earlier in the process. So um, material support, various associational crimes, um, conspiracy attempt, really pushing it back as far as possible so that we can prevent, um, because once a terrorist attack has happened, that's just it's too late considered. And so the, the question there is, um, I mean, first, is it possible, frankly, to, to shape the criminal law to satisfy our demands in terms of counterterrorism. But second, and perhaps more importantly, should we want to? And, and the reason I ask that is one can argue that if one changes the criminal law to satisfy our counterterrorism policies, one will have sacrificed an enormous part of that criminal law. And, and that there is no guarantee, for instance, that the compromises to criminal procedure, to compromises to um, inchoate crimes that we make in the terrorism context won't spill over into other crimes and essentially just weaken the criminal, uh, the criminal law protections that are presumably one of the most attractive parts of that. And so basically it's an argument for hiving off terrorism entirely so as not to infect, so to say, um, the, the rest of the criminal law. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean that that that's a that's a very serious concern, and it's one as a as a criminal lawyer that I worry about. Uh, but having said that, I think um, recognizing those dangers, the criminal law um, still has an extremely important and valuable place, both because it respects you know, generally respects human rights and in a way that commands, uh, you know, broad, broad base in international uh, uh, re 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 respect, but also because it publicizes and denounces uh, those who are planning uh, to engage in ter ter terrorist violence. And so, it, you know, it, I mean, where I really draw the line on a lot of these things, I think it's a fairly useful line to draw 
thought is the line at secret evidence. And so it seems that once you're using evidence that is not disclosed to the person that you are attempting to punish or incapacitate, then you've gone you know, over a pretty firm line that the criminal law uh, has, uh, has generally observed. And, you know, whether it's the Belmarsh detainees in, in, in the UK or those subject to control orders, whether it's uh, detainees at Guantanamo, whether it's those people detained under administrative law, immigration law, security certificates in Canada, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that although security professionals may have some very powerful arguments about why intelligence must be used as evidence and not disclosed to the person, that this uh, that there's a real danger that secret evidence will make uh, um, those subject to it kind of fairness mar martyrs. You also see this in a lot of the concerns about the 1267 listing process in the UN. And so although I have no problems with using and keeping secret intelligence for traditional intelligence purposes in terms of surveillance and not allowing people to enter a country, I do have some real reservations uh, uh, about the use of intelligence as a form of secret evidence. And as I like to think, at least throughout the the the, the book, those reservations um, are can be cashed out both with respect to human rights and, and the right to a fair trial and the right to confront your accusers. But I also think increasingly can be cashed out from a security perspective. So I think you know that there is an argument that say in Canada, where a number of people alleged to be associated with al-Qaeda have been subjected to basically indeterminate administrative detention on the basis of secret evidence. This has made these people in some circles uh, almost heroes because I think most people recognize that there's a kind of you know basic unfairness of being confronted with secret evidence. And so I think that the discipline of the criminal process, frankly, needs to be put upon intelligence agencies. Uh, and you know, here, I, I think to a certain extent, at least domestically, the, the United States is ahead of a lot of other countries where we have civilian domestic security intelligence agencies who basically don't want to live with the scrutiny that public evidence and the criminal process of confront confrontation uh, is going to present to their practices. Well, Professor, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, we've unfortunately run out of time, but it's a fantastic book and a very interesting conversation, and it absolutely deserves to be read Well, the, and, and read I'd like very to, widely. I'd like I'd like to thank you, Alan, for having so carefully and thoughtfully uh, read, read, read the book. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast. 
a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's an episode we recommend. History This Week, September 11, 2001. Captain Richard Thornton is piloting his ferry boat across New York Harbor when he sees two planes hit the World Trade Center. And that's when we pulled the 180-degree turn and we just headed south to uh, the World Trade Center area. Soon, countless other ferries, tugboats, and pleasure crafts join him. All available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard. Anyone want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan, report to Governor's Island. Find out how this heroic, impromptu rescue mission came together and how Captain Thornton sees it 20 years later on History This Week, available where... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.